The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Who's gonna be there when everything is tumbling down? Uh, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. I'm your host, John Zink. And I'm sitting here today with uh, a good friend of mine, and uh, his name is uh, Steven Salatz. Um, this is episode 2001. So uh, Steven is uh, just a total transparency. He's also not just the CIO, CPO, and EVP of Global Security Facilities and Internal Audit at Ramini Street. He's also one of my best friends, and he lives right down the street from me. So. Uh, He's been at Romini Street for almost 12 years. Uh, he's got a wife named Christy. He's got two kids, Sadie and Nate, and a dog named Fifi. That's correct. So, um, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for doing this. Uh, full transparency to everybody, this is our first ever podcast of the True Ambition Podcast, so bear with us. Um, now, first thing I want to talk about uh, is the pinball machine. That's at your house. Okay. So we'll talk about it later, but uh, you're a big Metallica fan. I am. And uh, Ed, he's got this amazing pinball machine. Uh, it's a Metallica pinball machine. Go ahead and tell people about that pinball machine. And what I really want to find out is who's got the highest score in that pinball machine. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, John. I didn't know that this was going to be the line of questioning. It's but... the first question. <laughs> yeah. So I got this uh, fantastic pinball machine. Um, actually, quite interesting fact, it's one of the top 10 uh, best pinball machines ever made. Some other ones in there are the Adams Family Iron Maiden. There's another oh, one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I got this uh, wonderful good friend that came over to my house, claimed he never played the pinball machine, and he's like playing. It's like, hey, what does this do? What does that do? Next thing I know, he makes 150 million high score on there. And I think my high score is what, 70 million? And I, I don't know, but I know that whoever put it must be an amazing pinball player. <laughs> So I, I went over to your house and started playing it yeah. and we were playing. He's got an amazing uh, room that has a pool table, <coughs> dartboard and pinball machine. It's one of the coolest pinball machines ever. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're sitting there playing and it's playing like all your favorite Metallica songs on yeah, it. it does. And it's got multi-ball going. There's balls flying all over the place. And uh, I ended up with this huge score and he's never let me live it down since. Oh. And I've been trying to play it off ever since. and. I just cannot beat the score, man. <laughs> well, hopefully one of these days you will, because yeah. then you'll come back and rub it in my face. So, oh, I will. Speaking of Metallica, um, you went to, and I, I just saw it on your Facebook page the other day, um, you were like in the front row for Metallica. Mm -hmm. um, tell people about the Metallica Iron Maiden story, because I love this story. Uh -huh. I'm a huge music fan. We'll talk more about that in a second, but this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, tell them about the concert. Actually, the Facebook post you saw was the year before. Oh, okay. It happened twice in a row, but, um, well, not the Iron Maiden experience, but basically um, what happened is uh, this was last year when um, Metallica was doing their 20-year anniversary for um, the S&M, which was uh, with the Symphony of San Francisco. All right. And um, so I do a lot of business with uh, Salesforce, and they invited me to come over to the Chase Center. We just opened the same day. And so we go there, and we show up, and... As we're hanging out in the back lounge, waiting for the show to start, 
I'm hanging out with the COO from Salesforce and we're just chatting, the guy's French and we're just having a little bit of a connection there going and a little bit talking. I'm meeting his son. Next thing I know, two gentlemen walk in and they show up in rock t-shirts and I'm like looking over and the guy's like, oh, that's management of Iron Maiden. And I'm like, okay, uh, management Iron Maiden, how do you know them? And they're like, oh, they're using Salesforce. I'm like, for what? So their whole online platform that they use for engaging with fans is all based on Salesforce. I had no idea. And so I start talking to these guys, they're obviously from the UK. So they're like, hey, what's your accent? So I'm like, hey, I'm Belgian. So we start talking a little bit. Next thing I know, we're sipping fine Metallica whiskey. I don't know if you know this, but Metallica <laughs> has a really fantastic whiskey <coughs> uh, called Blackens. And so we're drinking the whiskey and we're eating sushi and cold flaked s'mores and I'm sitting here, man, this is a Metallica concert, what the heck? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Last time I went to- How much things have changed. Yeah, right? So, so um, anyway, so I walk up to the bar together with uh, the guy from Iron Maiden. At this point, I'm not quite sure what he does, but um, we're ordering a Metallica beer and it's, um, the name is, uh, it's called Enter Night. We're ordering the beer, we're drinking it, and he's like, hmm, this is not bad. I'm like, how does it compare to your trooper beer? And he's like, well, there's only, really only one way to find this out. He's like, what are you doing tomorrow night? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, we're playing down in Sacramento. Do you want to head over there and uh, maybe you can try it? I'm like, uh, hell yeah. So I pull out my business card. <laughs> being, being a big Iron Maiden fan, I'm like, there's no second thing. Oh, yeah. So I pull out my business cards. I give him the business cards. I don't really think a lot is going to happen out of this. So I go to work. The day after I'm doing my thing, suddenly around noon, I get this email that says, you are on the Iron Maiden guest list. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> I call my admin, I'm like, cancel my day. I'm out. Call my brother-in-law, I'm like, hey man, what you're doing? He's like, oh, I'm working. I'm like, but well, whatever you're doing is not as important as this. We're going to Iron Maiden. He's like, what? So we drive over to Sacramento. I walk up to the will call window. And at this point, I have no clue really what I have, right? So I'm just like, okay, we're just going to a concert, right? So I walk up to the will call window. The lady's like, okay, give me your ID. She's looking at my ID. She's like looking through the boxes. She's like, can't find you, honey. Uh, where'd you buy your ticket? I'm like, well, I didn't really buy it. I got this invite. And she's looking at it. She's like, oh. And so she goes to this different box. She pulls out. She's like, here you go. She's like, go down the escalator. Go down the hallway to the right. You can't miss it. So I go down the escalator. Um, I go to the right, I go towards the curtain, I, uh, the, the security guy looks at my badge, he's like, yep. I walk through there, long hallway, I'm like talking to Andre and my brother-in-law, I'm like, man, this is pretty legit. So we all walk all the way to the end, it suddenly says Iron Maiden dressing room, and there's a security guard sitting there, he looks at our badge and he's like, yep. We walk in there, there's the whole Iron Maiden crew, all a whole bunch of fans, and they're all sitting there just hanging out. So you're sitting there with Bruce Davidson? Yep. Bruce oh all my there. God. We're just sitting there hanging out for like an hour and a half. Um, right before they have to go on the on stage, they're like, all right, we're gonna get ready. Uh, see you guys later. By the way, tomorrow morning, tour bus leaves at 9.30 in front of this hotel. I'm like, oh, hmm. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> should I? Yeah, you're going on tour. <laughs> yes, I'm like, that sounds like an invite to me, right? Um, but full transparency, didn't do that. But uh, then we basically went to the show. It was a fantastic show. It was amazing. So the question is, What's better, the Trooper or the Metallica beer? <laughs> I like both. They both have a very different taste. Uh, I know you don't drink, otherwise I would say, come check it out at <laughs> my house, I have both. <laughs> but uh, they have different tastes. I, 
And a trooper has a few variations where the Metallica beer is really only one beer. Okay. So. Well, that's awesome. Um, now, you and I went to Las Vegas to a Tool concert. So I'm a huge Tool fan. I know you are as well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was a, something happened that night where um, it was before the concert and you and I are cruising around. We played, played some blackjack. We both lost a few hundred dollars. And uh, I'm walking back. I'm like, let's go play this Buffalo machine. And uh, I walk over and there's these two yellow chips yep. on the floor. And I reach down, I grab them real quick and walk away. I'm like, come here. All right, so we head over to the bathroom. And We're if like, I may pause them for a second yeah. here. <laughs> what was really interesting is at this point, we had hung out a handful of times, right? right? This is like our first getaway. And I don't know what's happening besides the fact that you suddenly say, hey, let's go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> what <the> yeah, <laughs> what for? <laughs> exactly. Like, I always like to go to the bathroom with other men, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we go in there. I'm like, dude, check this out. I've just found two $1,000 chips on the floor. It was amazing. And then you said, do not give them back. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So we, we ended up. Went to the Tool concert. Um, it was amazing, mm -hmm. and then uh, got back, and we ended up both leaving even because of yeah. you know some some person lost a couple thousand dollar chips on the floor, and I'm like, all right, here we yeah. go, and it was it was awesome. It was one of the greatest experiences. You and I got closer that trip too. It was awesome. Wow, that was an amazing trip, and I thought what was really great is like I know you find those chips. Obviously, there's no name on them, so we couldn't really give them back to anybody. What I thought was really nice is like I did I I. I know that you were tipping people from the casino very, very nice as a result of that. And, and that was fantastic. Well, it was awesome. And it, it was money that wasn't meant for us yeah. and nobody else is going to get back. So why not take care of everybody, including ourselves? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which I appreciate as well. <laughs> so um, I got some information here and, uh, you know, the, the name of this podcast is True Ambition. Mm -hmm. And uh, anybody who knows my past knows, and you know well as a friend of mine, um, I've been in, uh, in recovery for about six and a half years from alcohol addiction. And one of my favorite quotes um, in one of the books is, it's uh, true ambition is not what we thought it was. Mm -hmm. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Once I read that um, quote, um, it kind of changed my life. Because I've always, I've always been ambitious myself. And looking back on my life, I think some of my ambitions were mostly just for my own desire to get ahead, to gain power, to get money, to get girls, you know, whatever it was, depending on that, that point in my life. So what I wanted to do with putting this podcast together is talk to other successful people um, and find out about their true ambitions. Mm -hmm. So some of the information you gave me, it's, it's really funny because all of our lives kind of intertwine and we, we have so many things in common. So. One of the things you talked about was uh, your dad leaving mm -hmm. when you were younger. How old were you? Um, it's interesting. My parents divorced when I was two years old. Okay. They never told me this. And they were living together. They were fighting every single day. And then when I did my first communion, which is when you were about six, mm -hmm. um, we went for dinner at, or for lunch, at which they were fighting. And we came home. He packed a suitcase and left. And I was like, what's going on? And the message was, divorcing and that your dad is leaving blew my mind right like, yeah yeah it's uh it's something else because 
same thing. I didn't find out until I was like 20 years old that my dad who yeah. raised me wasn't my dad. Exactly. Boom. Yeah. You know, your mind is just like, okay, what do I do with this? Yeah. Um, now, you also said in some of the information you gave me that uh, you dealt with some uh, family addiction issues. Mm -hmm. I think you said in there your mom. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was interesting. So um, I never realized, as a kid, you don't really realize this, right? So I always knew that my mom was taking medication, which was Xanax, but I never really realized what that meant, what that was for, uh, or how much you should be taking of that or anything like that, right? Until suddenly you get older and you realize that there is quite some dependency there on that medication. And almost like, it seems like, what I, what I kind of started realizing is like, she's not functioning unless she's taking this, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, what happened is she... Um, Do you know how old you were when you realized that that was going on? This interact, I, I, you have, uh, how old's Nate? Nate is uh, 13 years old. Okay, 13, mm -hmm. and I have Johnny who is two years old. Mm -hmm. And I just yeah. wonder about, you know, when they realize, yeah. and maybe we can go back in our history and figure out when we kind of realize that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would think definitely around 12, 13, you kind of start connecting the dots, right? You're, you're hearing a lot more about it at school. Uh, so you kind of start realizing that maybe that is not normal. What also happened is though, around the age I was 12, my mom's second husband became an alcoholic. Mm. He wasn't before, he was more a social drinker. And suddenly that social drinking shifted into full-blown alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and I was very aware of that, right? Um, and that went on for about five years. And then my mom became an alcoholic as well. Mm. She left him and then became an alcoholic, which was strange, but yeah. it's, uh, but it's kind of hard to say where exactly do you realize this? Yeah. You know? Well, it's all tough along the way. And it's like yeah. me being a recovering alcoholic, um, you, you just don't, no, nobody plans on being there, you know, yeah. but nobody plans on ending up where we all end up. And uh, nobody plans on, you know, mistreating their kids or doing their kids yeah. wrong or nothing like that. But all of a sudden you just find yourself there. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, your stepfather or whatever he was, um, you know, started off as a social drinker and then it just all of a sudden it ends up at that tipping point where you just go over the edge. Exactly. Let me ask you, like as a, as a recovering alcoholic, do you realize when you became an alcoholic? Is there like a point? Well, do, do you realize when and at some point did you... How long did it take actually for you to really understand that? It's interesting because like right now I'm writing a book, which is also called True Ambition. And I'm going through all of this um, history. And uh, when I first got sober, um, you know, I, I thought I was a pretty decent guy. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking back on things and realizing how selfish you are as a, a practicing alcoholic, you know, when you're out there drinking. Um, and I look back on things where I didn't think I was that bad, you know, but I was in my early 20s doing things like I'd be playing in a band and I'd pass out on stage behind a speaker. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. <laughs> you know, you're in the middle of what you do and passing out behind a speaker, yeah, you know, giving no care at all towards the other band members that are on stage. Mm -hmm. And then another time later in my 20s or early 30s, I was in Minneapolis and same thing, got drunk and I passed out under a state, under a drum riser, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that band broke up the next day. I wonder why, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's just, it, when it really started affecting me was mid thirties, mid to late thirties, right around my 40th birthday is when things started really affecting me a lot yeah. as far as my health. 
you know, I always say thank God for hangovers because if it wasn't for hangovers, I don't even know if I would have got sober. You mm -hmm. know, it's just all of a sudden that pain takes over. Mm -hmm. And then I knew I had to do something. Before that, it was just, uh, you know, let's go out and uh, get rid of all of the bad thoughts in my head, mm -hmm. you know, about childhood, about some of the things that happened to me that I didn't have any control over. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just start drinking or, you know, doing drugs or whatever people do to try mm -hmm. to silence those voices in your head and try to make yourself feel better. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. so. Wow. Um, one of the other things I read on here is that, you know, you're the CIO mm -hmm. um, of Romini Street and you got a couple other titles as well, but you weren't a good student. We're not a good student at school. Not at all. Me neither. I was horrible. <laughs> so yeah. tell me a little bit about that. What, what, what was what was your problem? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because I've always, as a kid, I was always a dreamer. Like I would sit in the classroom and it's kind of scary because I see the same with Nate, my son. Yeah. And I could I could dream for hours like anything right and when I was not in school I would always be tinkering with things I would be taking things apart like you know this microphone I would be taking it apart see how it works right try to build something out of it um, so I was always like I was also very fascinated by computers so technology science all that stuff right uh, so my school was just never where it had to be I wasn't paying attention in class my grades were really bad um, in fact I was held back twice. Um, it came to the point where, um, because education is really important in Belgium, where I'm from, and if you don't have a degree, you're being treated very different. Mm. So it's like, it's very silent based on your education. And so it was, uh, it was very important for my mom to, for me to have a degree. So it was actually that bad that she's like, well, let's see if he's intellectually there. Let's have him do an IQ test, which, um, was actually, which backfired because it showed that actually my IQ was really high. It was in the 130s, which is up there. And um, as a result, she was only more frustrated with me for not accomplishing anything in school. So it backfired on you because you're like, oh, now I got to work because it shows that I'm smart. <laughs> no, well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't getting better, right? Right, so, right, right. Well, it's probably all the issues that were going on in your home. Yeah. It's like there's so many kids that are super smart out there. Mm -hmm. And when you have that stuff going on at home, that's, you know, mm -hmm. you, there's no way you can be happy in that situation. The last thing you want to do is go prove how smart you are. Yeah. You know, I know. Yeah. Or mo most people, mm -hmm. you know, that I don't want to go to uh, school and do a bunch of uh, work when my whole home life is not showing me any future at all. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is I, I always had that. I, well, I have ADHD, so my attention span is so short. It's not even funny. Right. So that it didn't help me either. Uh, especially in school. I feel like I have it better under control as I got older, but when I was a kid, it, that's it, that's also why I was, I could walk out of the classroom and have no clue what we just talked about for the last hour kind of thing. Right, yeah, well, I, I'm very much that way too. Um, I don't know about the ADHD, I'm pretty level, um, but I have to be doing things all the time. And I was always dreaming, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know I'm, I'm a musician. And uh, when I was in band and choir and things that interested me, uh, always, you know, top of my game. Mm -hmm. When I was in other classes that I didn't care about, I mean, I, I literally, my junior and senior year of high school, I had to beg my history teacher to uh, pass me so I could get out. I'm like, you don't want me back. I don't want to come back. Let's figure this out, right? Yeah. You know, but it just goes to show, um, it, 
you don't have to have that education. Mm-hmm. You got to have that drive. Yeah. And it just there's so many stories of entrepreneurial type thinkers mm-hmm. that, that can't can't even think about you know going to school and doing all that kind of stuff when you're in those situations. You know, you yeah. kind of have to work your way out of it and mm-hmm. figure your way out of it and yeah. think your way out of it. So um, now you said that you not only were a dreamer, but you also felt misunderstood. I, I oftentimes felt misunderstood because, yeah, my grades were not good. Um, so you, you, you knew you were smart. I'm not sure, but I... I, I, I so did, did people tell you that you weren't smart? Yes. So... And you knew that wasn't right. Yeah, well, I don't know. So basically, as I was growing up, a lot of a lot people knew I didn't have good grades. People knew that I was outside on the streets playing, getting in trouble. Um, as a kid does, um, but because I wasn't getting good grades and because education was so important uh, or is so important in, in, in Belgium, yeah. um, a lot of parents would tell me like, stay away from my son uh, or, 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 or the son would say, hey, my parents don't want me to hang out with you because you're not a good kid. I'm like, wow, okay, what does that mean, right? So that would be hurtful, right? Like one time I remember going to somebody's house and the kid goes like, hey, my parents are calling me and I'll be back in a little bit. I'm literally staying out there for like half an hour, 45 minutes. And the kid comes out and he says like, uh, my dad wants you to leave. And I'm like, wow, okay. What did I do? Right. right. <laughs> it's like, I didn't do anything. Um, so that was hard. And I had a lot of those experiences. And then at the same time, uh, my parents, like I said, were very frustrated. So they kept telling me like, you're gonna get nowhere. Like I remember one time my dad, I, was, I must have been like 16 or 17. And my dad said, why don't you just go get a job? At least you'll make money. <laughs> it's not like that is a school stuff is gonna happen for you. So why don't you just go work? Right. I'm like, wow, you know, like I know I can do better, you know, like why would I do that? That's yeah. like, that was never taught it. You know what I mean? Like it was, that's why I felt very misunderstood. Yeah, I had, I had, I can totally relate. Uh, because like my mom and dad uh, in Illinois both worked at factories. That's what they knew, mm-hmm. right? And my mother retired from a factory job after 35 years. Her plan for me, because I didn't go to college, I, I, I went to one day of college. I, was, I knew I was done after that. <laughs> I literally <laughs> left. Yeah. I went for one class and I left out of there. Um, she said, well, go get a job at LK, which is this manufacturing company where she worked at. And she retired there after 35 years. Mm-hmm. Great living. All she really wanted to do was uh, um, have a great job so she could provide for her son and her family. And she retired doing that. And she did a great job. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't. I went and worked at that LK manufacturing for one summer. Mm-hmm. And I think I was on the assembly line. And uh, I think... I was putting a box over top of a water cooler, which is what they manufactured. And I was just hoping and praying that I can move up the line and I could run the drill to put a screw into the side of the thing, just so I could change it up a little bit. And I knew from that time, like, I need to get out of here. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things I was going to talk about here is uh, you had a restaurant job. Mm -hmm. So did I. Tell me about your experience and what you learned from that restaurant job. Well, for me, I was, that was actually around the time I was 16 and I started as a summer job. So I went to work there July, August. And from there, I kept working every Thursday, Saturday and Sunday. So I kept working there during, during school time. 
Uh, it was hard work. It was not. It was not an eight-hour gig. It was. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much 12, 13 hours. And I feel what I learned there is definitely like you know, you kind of work hard, play hard. Kind of looking back at those times, right? Like it's like there was also like I knew that it's not what I wanted. It's like just kind of like what you're saying about the factory line, right? I knew that that was not what I wanted. It was hard work. It was not easy. Um, I was I was doing dishes. So you're sitting in the back room doing dishes. It's like a hundred freaking degrees in there for like 13 hours straight, right? And if I was lucky, it's kind of funny that you say that about the screw because when I was lucky, they would say, "Hey, can you go peel potatoes?" I was like, oh, yes. yes, best day, <laughs> best day ever. <laughs> like, right? And then I would sit there and like literally peel like 100 kilograms of potatoes with a huge smile on your face. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like my fingers would be cut up. I'm like, oh, this is a great day. Yes. Um, so it's like you knew. I, I knew I didn't want that, but I learned. I think what I learned there is to work hard. Me too. That's exactly. I worked at a, there was a small restaurant, uh, in a small town. It was one of the best known restaurants in town. It's called Siebert's and it was uh, pizzas and steaks and all this kind of stuff. And what I got out of there was the same thing. I washed dishes. That's where I started and, uh, hard work, long hours. You know, you get there at three or four o'clock in the afternoon and maybe get off at two o'clock in the morning yeah. after a big long night. Yeah. And, uh, but Bob Sievert was the guy's name who owned the place. And we mm-hmm. used to sit down there at the end of the night after you're all done. And I would sit there and eat a pizza, love pizza. And, uh, I would, I would, I would ask Bob, I'm like, you have one of the most successful restaurants in town. Mm-hmm. How do you do it? And he sat there and he would tell me, you know, this is how I did it. It was in business for like 40 years. Right. And, uh, he said, one of the main things that I do as a restaurant owner is I never, ever drink in my own establishment. He goes, I'll go and have a drink at one of the other establishments around there. And then I'll buy a drink for somebody over there or something. But I'll never drink in my own establishment. And I learned so much from that. I didn't follow it all the time. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was interesting to listen to him and just to learn the hard, learn how to work hard. Mm-hmm. And I also bailed hay as a kid and stuff like that. Learn how to really work hard in the Midwest, uh, which it sounds like you did too. Um, but just learning something from every situation that uh, yeah. we were in. When, I, when I'm looking back at this, as I'm thinking more about those days, like, yeah, I, I, like I said, as I ended, I learned to work hard. And if, if I think about it, because you couldn't slack off, you're doing the dishes. And when you slack off, dishes are piling up. Oh, yeah. And the chef from the kitchen will be on your case, man. Like, he would be so upset about it. There's, there's nothing to do. I mean, you have to just get it. So you couldn't slack off, right? So it's like 12, 13 hours, boom, boom, boom. Funny fact, it was an Italian restaurant since you were doing pizza. Oh yeah. <laughs> so same here. <laughs> I always worked at places I wanted to eat the food. <laughs> oh, me too, man. Yeah, and Thursday night, that's probably why I was working Thursday night because Thursday night was pizza nights. It was once a week and then it was other Italian cuisine for the rest. Yeah. Well, now, um, one of the things I was looking at here is uh, you, You've always had that entrepreneurial mindset. Mm-hmm. You said you were selling plants. What kind of plants? Well, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> so um, I was always kind of looking as a kid, looking for business ideas. And so there was this um, abandoned place, uh, not too far from my house. And we would like, like I said earlier, always playing outside, right? Um, we had like a group of like three, four people that were always like on our bikes. We were always wearing like rain boots, always going around the neighborhoods. And so anyway, so we would oftentimes go by this house that was abandoned, but it had like fanta- it had like a lot of land on it and it had like fantastic plants. 
And so me thinking is like, wow, there's like <laughs> there's like thousands of plants in the backyard, and it was planted um, as a nursery. It was not planted as a as a garden, right? Yeah. I'm like, wow, this is abandoned. There's all these plants. I can sell these things, right? Right. So I start I start taking them out, putting them in nice pots and going from house to house. I'm like, hey, do you want to buy a plant? Next thing I know, like people are like, oh yeah, of course. Next thing I know, I'm starting to make some money. So one of the kids I was hanging out with, his dad goes to me, he's like, Steven, these plants are really nice. Where do you get these plants? And I'm like, oh, down the street. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he goes like, oh. He's like, that's a problem. <laughs> He's like, uh, we gotta go talk to your mom about this. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so I had to go back to everybody's house, get all those plans back. Oh, well, see, it lost all the money. Yes. Oh. Uh, and plant them back. But yeah, that was my first business venture. Uh, I obviously didn't make it big, but you kind of learn about, like, you know, how to kind of market your product, you kind of make some, you know, like, I've, and I've always had that. Like, you know, I would try to build PCs. Um, well, that was one of the questions on here. Tell me about BBS, which stands for Bullet and Board System. Ah, that was a that was a great time. So yes, uh, that's like before you had before you had the internet. Before you had the internet, we had basically dial up bullet and board systems. So basically, what you would have is you would have a bunch of servers, and there would be phone lines tied into this, and you could call in there. You could download files. You could share files. You could talk to other people. You could quote unquote email, it wasn't email, but something like email. So you could like message people. And what year was that? Oh, this was uh, 97, 98. Okay. Uh, right. Maybe 96 even, like it was. Right at the beginning. Yes. And um, it's actually interesting because when I was doing that, so I was running this whole farm that I had kind of built together with recycled computers and this and that. And I had convinced to get the phone, like I had a phone line for my own. I had my mom convinced that I could take the house phone line from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. So I had like multiple phone lines tied into this and I needed more. So I needed to get a job. So I started calling around. I started calling uh, computer companies, uh, uh, computer stores. Back in the day, a lot of small uh, mom and pop shops um, where you could like basically get your computer fixed. You could buy computers. So I started calling all these guys, basically cold calling and maybe after 15, 20 calls, this guy says, oh, that sounds interesting. Why don't you come to my shop? And let's talk about this. So this guy has a shop in Antwerp. I walk into the store and he's like, and he's like walking up. He's like, oh, hey, nice meeting you, this and that. He's like, come back. And he's like soldering a motherboard of a computer. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, dude, you're burning the chips of this, this motherboard. You can't be doing this, right? I'm like, his name was Tom. And I was like, Tom, you gotta stop doing this, man. You, you're burning this. He's like, I'm like, you got this, this, and this. And he's like, oh. Seems like you know what you're talking about. Do you want to do it? I'm like, sure. So I'm doing this, I'm fixing the computer. And he's while I'm doing it, he's telling me, he's like, yeah, this is for a customer. This is running all this um, access database stuff that he's built, that he's um, built over the years, and we need to get this back. And if I can save this computer, it would be tremendous, this and that, right? So I finished this, and he's like, all right, let's not talk about your bulletin board system. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I would like to get a few more computers, and I need to get some income so that I can buy more phone lines. In return, I will advertise. And I had maybe like a few thousand callers a month. So it was not great volume, but it was also not small. And so he said, okay, we can do this. We can do this, this, and this. And then he's like, by the way, since you know, you know, you know all this stuff about computers, why don't you come work here? And that was actually a very big shift for me. When I started working there, start building computers, 
and also start building networks at his customers' offices, that's when I really realized that computers were my true passion. Before that, I was always kind of tinkering in my garage or my right. basement. And I was like, Holy Just because you put all the pieces together yes. on how it works for society? Yeah. Okay. And that's when I realized I have to get out of school as fast as I can, and then I have to go to college and get that done, and then I have to go off. So all, the, all of a sudden you had the motivation and you could see the big picture. Once I found the passion, once I found the motivation, well, once I had the passion and I was like, yes, and, and the validation that I actually was good at it and right. knew what I was doing, from there it was a piece of cake. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, that, that local computer store job, that's what you're just talking about? Mm -hmm. The first corporate gig, I was reading it, you had some balls. Mm -hmm. So you told the CIO in like the second week you were there mm -hmm. that uh, he should rebuild the whole network. Uh, tell me how that came about. And tell, tell, me, tell me how you had the chutzpah <laughs> to step up and say that on your second week there. You see, and I've never been a shy person. So, and that's always been like that. I know that about you. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's also why I felt so misunderstood and why maybe in school things were not easy because even in school, I would be like questioning teachers. Right. I'm like, why are we doing this? And it'd be like, because I'm telling you to do it. And I'm like, well, that's not, that's not a good answer. Right. <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, Stephen, get out of the classroom, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, Go to the principal's office. I'm like, oh man. So anyway, so yeah, so I take this job. So what that happened is, Right before that, um, I was there during my um, Easter break, and I did a I did an Easter break job there uh, in the IT departments, and that happened through my ex girlfriend's um, dad. He got me a job there just to help uh, the help desk. So after that, the CIO tells me he's like, "Hey man, you're doing a pretty good job. You know, if you graduate from high school, I will give you a job on the help desk." And um, he gives me a contract. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, "Okay." And as I'm signing it, it's like, I do not want to do a help desk. That's not <laughs> what I want to be doing. Right. But I'll sign this and then we'll see from there. Right? Super cool. So I get this job, pays like $1,000 a month. I'm like, yes. Um, and so I'm there. And as I'm sitting there in my first week and I'm looking around at the infrastructure, and they were using something called Wang Systems, which is a very old mainframe, mm -hmm. and AS400. And that's what they're using. And everybody on their desk has like a green terminal. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, and now the internet is out, right? There's websites, there's email, there's all that stuff out there. And then they have all these rotor platforms that they're using because basically the company was trading in non-ferro metals, copper. So they had a big manufacturing plants um, and then they were also trading. They were buying, selling constantly. And so in order to email, there was one, they had one, computer per department that had email. It's like, it's ridiculous, right? right? So I'm sitting there, I'm like, what are we doing here, right? And I had set up all these servers at the computer store. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, this doesn't make no sense. So I opened PowerPoint, I started jotting things down and I walked into his office on the second week and I'm like, man, you guys gotta make a leap. You gotta, it's funny, today we talk about digital transformation, but right. I'm like, you gotta make a leap. You gotta get away from these, um, from these green terminals and you gotta go to NT4, Exchange 5.5. You gotta get a web server up and running. And if we do all this, what will happen is everybody, every trader will have email on their desk that they can use to, to email outside parties or internal parties. They can do price checks on Reuters on their desktop. They can do all these things and it's like, 
and production will go through the roof. Yes. He's like, wow, that's crazy. He's like, he goes like, can you go to the CFO office with me? So I go into the CFO office with him and I'm like doing the same spiel. And they're both sitting there like, oh my God, how do we do this? So I'm like, I'll build it for you. And I had never done this before. I bet really. the rest <laughs> of the employees loved you. Oh man, I was on everybody's shit list. <laughs> it was crazy. Like I would literally have like this one, this one guy walks up to me, he had been there for like 20 years. And he's like, Steven, in my first job, I changed printer toners for the first five years. And I looked at him and like, I'm so sorry for you, man. Like, sucks <laughs> to be you. I'm like, what does that have to do with the fact that that we're doing this, right? No, that, that's the that's the thinking that keeps keeps people down. Mm. It's the thinking that, yeah. wait a second, kid. Yeah. I did this for five years and now you come in here with a great idea. Yeah. And uh, you know, thank God you did that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we uh, I always talk to people about, you know. What was that moment that changed your life? That that yeah. sounds like one of those transformational moments oh, sure. where everything just changed for you because you're willing to go outside of your comfort zone, or maybe it is your comfort zone, just to <laughs> go out there and go, hey. But well, uh, you know, thank God you did it. Well, I I, I don't mind calling things out. You know, I think it's that's the also, truth. Exactly, and that's also I think where I got where I got to be. It's like you don't have to accept status quo. You know right. what I mean? Like, and it's like. You gotta, you gotta always think forward. You gotta keep improving. You gotta keep moving forward. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, you know, I know all this stuff exists, and this company doesn't have this. And while I wasn't connecting all the business dots, it was very clear to me: if these people have this, then this is what the impact is to their employees, to their traders. This is, you know, and even in the factory, because in the factory they're all sitting there on green terminals. I mean, this makes no sense to me. You yeah. know, like you guys are like 20 years behind. Yeah. Step up and do it. Yeah. So, you and I talked about it a long time ago, but you lived in Paris. Mm-hmm. How long were you there for? And what um, took you there? Uh, my job. So, when I went to my second job, so, so I, w- I did that at, um, the, co- the company was called Natalo. And so, I worked there. I did that whole transformation. And after I was done, they kind of told me and they said, you know what? Um, thank you so much. So, now what I did is like, I traveled all over Europe. I integrated all their remote warehouses because they had all these warehouses where they would have all the materials that they're buying show up and then they would trade them or they would bring them to the manufacturing plants, right? So I connected all of these with um, frame relay networks back in the day. And so connected everything and they said, you know what, this is amazing, Stephen. They gave me a nice race and they wanted me to stay, but I knew that I was not gonna be doing anything that awesome for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go look for another job. So I went to work for a company called Ionic. And, ha- and this actually the same happened in that. And that job. was in Paris as well? No, that was in Belgium. In Belgium. And that was a job where basically, that was my second job. So at this point I had like two or three years of experience. Okay. I'm interviewing with these guys. I walk in there and the guy's like, here's a Microsoft certified systems engineer test. Complete this. I'm okay. Completing it. He comes get the paper, he walks away and he's like, you did really well on this test. So let's talk. He's like, I was concerned because you don't have a degree. I was in, at the meantime, I was pursuing a degree, but I hadn't finished yet, right? So he's like, you don't have a degree, but let's talk because you did really good. So he's talking to me. He calls in his COO. The COO comes in. They're both talking to me and they're sitting there and I can tell there is hesitation. I'm like, hey man, I can tell there is hesitation. I understand. Two years of experience, no degree. You're taking quite a bit of risk because the guy that was hiring me, I was replacing the IT manager. The IT manager was moving to Canada. And so I was going to take this thing over, right? And so basically, I said, why don't we do this? I'll take two weeks of time off at my current job 
I'll work here for free. If you like what I'm doing, you hire me. If you don't like it, I'll just go my own way. We said, okay, we'll do that. So I worked there for two weeks, done deal, took the job. Uh, nine months later, we sold the company to a company in America called Wind River Systems. And this was just around- what, what year was that Wind River bought out that company? So this must have been around 2000, because what happened is in 2001, when um, the dot-com bubble bursted, that's when we had to close that operation. Okay. And that's when I was given the option to move either to the UK or to Germany. And I said, well, don't want to move to the UK because the office is in Swindon, which is literally in the middle of nowhere. Okay. I'm like, I'm young. I'm not going to live there. And I'm not such a big, I'm not so keen on going to live in Germany. Uh, but you know what? I would love to move to California. And they're like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> We're trying to save money. We're not going to be able to relocate you to California. I'm like, okay, what about Paris? And they're like, well, in Paris, we're trying to get a headcount down under 50 people because of unions and all that. So I'm like, okay, well. So I kind of held my ground and they had my severance package calculated and everything. And Christmas Eve, my boss calls me and he's like, dude, you're still interested in moving to Paris? I'm like, sure. He's like, January 1st, it's a done deal. Merry Christmas. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, thought, I thought December 31st was my last day, right? right? So I was like, wow, okay, I'll be there January 1st, deal. So I did that, lived there for about three years. I'm finally answering your question. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I lived there for three years and then I moved to the United States. Awesome. So when, so 2003-ish you moved to the US? It was more like, <clears throat> it must have been 2004 when I moved to the United States. So had you been to the US before? I started coming to the US when I, went, when I moved to Paris. Interestingly enough, my job changed a lot from being the sysadmin guy running the Belgian office. I became responsible for all of Europe. And that came about because I saw similar problems, right? Um, what had happened with Wind River Systems is they had done a lot of acquisitions. So they had all these sites in Europe. If I recall correct, maybe 40 sites or something crazy. Okay. And all these sites were having different firewalls, different network equipment, different servers, all that stuff. So I had made proposals, same thing. I had made proposals about how we standardize this. And if we standardize to similar platforms across these offices, this is what this will mean for the company, right? And so as a result of that, I became in charge of all of the European IT operations. Awesome. Yeah. So. Moving to the U.S., what, what did you do when you came here? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what was what was your, was there a new position, or what brought you? Yeah, so I didn't really answer it. I said I told you how that job evolved, but basically, then as a result of that, I started coming to the U.S. a lot. Okay. And so the CIO um, at Wind River knew that I was interested in moving here, and they did look at me a little bit as a hacker, and they looked at me as somebody that could really. Um, understand security components of, of, of infrastructure and understand architecture because of all the, uh, the standardizations I did. So what happened is Wintriver was a public traded company and had quite a bit of problems with SOX and complying with SOX and figuring all that out. And they said, Stephen, we think of you a little bit as a hacker and an architect and you understand security and KPNG is asking us all these questions about security and we think you're the right guy. And I'm like, okay. And so we made a deal that I would come to the U.S. for six months. We would try this out because at this point I'm still, what, 25 years old or something, right? Like, um, let's try this out. Let's see how this goes. And if this all goes well for the next six months, then maybe we can talk about a relocation to the United States. 
So we did that. We did that for six months and then we moved over or I moved over to the United States. Awesome. And then you worked for Moody's for a while. Yeah. Yep. How was that? Well, that quite frankly sucked. That was, <laughs> you know, and that's we all have to have those. Yes. So um, I think my my first experience with a job changing from my liking was Wind River. Wind okay. uh, River was fantastic, but the CIO left. The new CIO that came in, he was a Dutch guy. Loved the guy. Such a great mentor. Learned so much from him. But he left as well. And then the new leadership that came in, I could just not see the connection. Right. I, we were just not thinking alike. Um, like. Like one time I'm working on this big penetration test, which is basically a security audit of your network and I have it all teed up and everything. And the CIO says, you know what? I'm overruling this and we're going with this company because what the sales rep, he took me out to go golf. And I'm like, wow, that was your motivation to go do that? Yeah. I was like, okay. I'm like, you know, I gotta go. I mean, yeah. we're not seeing an eye to eye here, right? I mean, like we're trying to fix business problems, you know? You want to go play golf with the guy? Go play golf. You know what I mean? Like it's like. Yeah. So I moved on. I moved on to uh, Moody's, and Moody's. I learned. I learned quite a bit of things from Moody's. I was working in the credit rating um, department, Moody's KMV, which is basically really cool. What they do is they have a software, and back in the day, you would feed in a portfolio. So Bank of America, for example, would say, "All right, here's our portfolio. We're feeding this into this analytical system. It would basically calculate for a week, and then it would spit out." A risk rating mm. and that would allow Bank of America then to readjust their portfolio if they had to. Now, that was really fantastic um, in that regard. Very smart people, all PhDs, learned a lot from those guys. But the problem is Moody's was 130 years old at the time, a very big company, 5,000 employees or something like that. And it was moving really slow. Like for example, they, too, they, they had gone through a whole bunch of acquisitions themselves. And again, I saw an opportunity to, to, uh, to, to streamline things. I built this big proposal. In concept, the, operating, the chief operating officer agreed on the proposal, but then it took nine months without explanation, without logic, and to get an approval. And then there were a few projects that I took and that I was working on where I was, said, where I was told like, hey, you're part of IT. You worry about IT, we'll worry about the rest. I was like, it, I just couldn't see it. You yeah. know, like, that's not me. I'm like, let's work together to fix business problems. Let's work together to do this, this, or this. And if you tell me I can't question what we're doing there, then why am I here, right? Yeah. I'm just asking a question like, hey, why are we doing this? And they would tell me like, that's not your business. And Yeah, I see, I see that at a lot of our clients. So, you know, I run an IT staffing company mm -hmm. and a lot of our clients that are huge, so much red tape. Yes. Uh, behind what's going on. Yep. So many politics involved. And uh, just to get something done, sometimes just getting a person hired, getting a contractor hired. Yeah. I mean, you got to jump through hoops. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's sometimes you just got to. For me, I worked at a very large staffing firm before I moved to California. Um, some of the same, same things were going on there as far as this internal politics. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> kind of some of the same things that uh, you and I have talked about in the past. I, I wanted to get away from all of those politics and just do what I love to do, mm -hmm. which is solve problems for people. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, what we kind of did here. Yeah. But right after that is when you went to Romini Street. Yeah. How big was it when you guys, when you started? It was how small. many people worked there? 
Um, under 100 people, it was maybe 80 people. <clears throat> okay. Mm -hmm. And how much revenue? A few million bucks, maybe a million and a half, something like that. And then today you guys are publicly traded. Mm -hmm. And how many people work at Romini Street today? We have about 1,400 full-time employees and we do about $300 million in revenue. Wow, that's inspiring. Um, so tell us what Romini Street does. Sure. So Romini Street, uh, it's a support company. So we work with companies to, to manage their large enterprise software systems, right? Um, these are Oracle SAP systems. You can think manufacturing, supply chain, distribution, CRM, HR systems, right? Okay. And what we do is very disruptive. We actually replace the maintenance contract that these companies have with, vendor, uh, with the vendor and saving the companies 50% doing so, right? So potentially companies can save millions of dollars by switching to our mini streets. And it allows them quite a bit of things. It allows them, well, it gets them better support, mm -hmm. faster response times, but um, it also allows them to stay on these releases that they've been, because implementing such complex systems is not easy. It takes a lot of time for implementation, a lot of customizations. It can cost millions of dollars in implementation alone, right? And coming to Remini Street allows these companies to really stay on those releases for a long time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, right? We allow them to do that. And when you're with the, with the big vendors, they try to have you upgrade all the time, right? Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, well, your product is end of life, so you want to go to the new version. Well, it's an HR system. What's in the new version compared to the old version? Right. Right? You're doing payroll, right? And so that's what is um, really our business model, and that's the value proposition for the companies or our clients. So you and I talked about it before, but what, what excites you about the position you're in today mm -hmm. and the company you're in today? What, what, what really excites you about where you're at? Pretty much everything. Um, and we are just up to our 15th year anniversary and I had to think about this a little bit. Um, and so I've been with the company for about 12 years. Mm -hmm. And a few things that really excite me about the company is the story. First of all, we are questioning the status quo. We are questioning the big software vendors or we are challenging the big software vendors um, with what, how, they're met, how they're doing their support model, which is 90, 9% profit or something crazy like that, right? Maybe a little bit lower, but in the high 90s, right? Um, it's the David against Goliath uh, kind of story, right? We are really challenging and we're really fighting that battle. Um, we are changing the history as how enterprise software support works. And that really excites me to be part of that. Now, the company itself, I've always really felt at home. We are all technical people, very smart people there. and. Uh, we, we are all very driven and it's, 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 it's great to be part of that team. You know, my own leadership team, fantastic people. And we're constantly trying to fix business problems, trying to move forward, trying to keep growing the company. Uh, like I said, we grew it from a few million dollars to 50 million to 100 to, two, to 300. And now we're going to keep going to 500 million, a billion and beyond, right? And so keep rebuild, reinventing the company because as you do that, you have to constantly reinvent. A company right. that's $10 million is not the same company that's $100 million. The same processes <coughs> don't work, right? So, so solving those problems really excite me. What I also really enjoy about Remini Street is the foundation. We started the foundation in 2015, and that's where we give back to the community. We've given back millions of dollars. We've given back um, thousands of hours. Um, what, what does the foundation do? We 
we, we are basically a charitable foundation and we give, we, we give to charities. We, we, well, we do two things. We give money grants and we give employee time. So myself, for example, I've volunteered at food banks. Um, I've sorted clothes in Vegas at, uh, for kids that are basically homeless. I have no idea how many kids are actually homeless. Uh, it blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, that are basically couch surfing at best and, and being able to help those kids and, 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 and or help those, fun, uh, those charities that are helping those kind of kids. Um, actually, right before COVID, uh, I, I helped restore a building in Vegas uh, for um, uh, the Cupcake Girls. And the Cupcake Girls was a foundation that's basically focused on um, getting uh, uh, prostitutes out of that circuit. Hmm. And the way they do that is by waiting in bathrooms with cupcakes and then having a conversation with those ladies um, and see how they can help and how they can maybe give a safe home and maybe change their um, uh, their situations. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> I remember when COVID did hit, you got yourself a 3D printer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys had like three of them, right? Uh, actually, we ended up with 10 people printing. Oh, really? Yeah. So, um, Romani Street, um, it was all Romani Street people, right? Yeah. So, you guys were... Um, what doing PPE was it uh, the face shields correct so printing face shields 3d printing face shields he also printed some other some pretty good stuff too <laughs> but the the face shields uh, I know there was also computers that were given out to uh, schools yeah uh, so a great company and it's mm-hmm. something inspiring for the rest of us to look up to yep um, and it's one of the things I, I know you're younger than me but uh, I look up to you as a friend and uh, you know one of my smarter friends that I can go, hey, what do you think about this? Because I'm at that point now where I'm trying to grow my company. Mm-hmm. And it's great to have people in your life who you can bounce stuff off of that have been there before. Mm-hmm. And to have mentors like that in your life, it's great to be able to walk up to somebody and go, hey, this is what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about this? And you might already know the answer in your head, but sometimes you just need somebody else to come back and go, exactly. this is what I think. And then you go, okay, we'll put two and two together and go, okay, this yeah. is what I need to do. A lot of the stuff that we're doing in my company, you know, the, the marketing, some of the other things that we're doing as a company right now came off of you and I being on a hike uh-huh. together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said, hey, can I give you some constructive criticism? <laughs> And that's always a loaded question, like, oh, God, do I want to hear constructive criticism? (laughs) But, you know, if if you're smart enough to listen to it, you know, the the things that we're doing now as a company compared to six months ago when you and I had that conversation, it all takes takes off from there if you're smart enough to listen to it. Yeah. So um, what was the most notable event that changed your life? Career-wise, personal-wise, that's a big question. Man. It's a big question. It's a big show. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's just um, what really changed my life. I think it's really been uh, when you look when I look career-wise, it has been stick like we talked about just for the last half hour here. It's like sticking out uh, your neck in situations where other people will be like, maybe you know, like. I'm not going to say anything. This right. is all messed up, but let's just do my thing and not worry about it, right? Yeah. Um, in my personal life, I mean, um, obviously meeting my wife, that was, I mean, that's, that's for sure, right? Having my kids, I mean, that kind of stuff is uh, definitely top of my mind. Awesome. Um, 
this is professionally, is there a person that was the person who changed your trajectory mm -hmm. the most? I mean, someone who's in your past as far as a business mentor, someone that stepped up that you look back on and go, thank God for this guy or girl being in my life. Yeah. It's actually funny. It's the, and I realized that as we were talking earlier, it's the second CIO at Wind River. Um, his name was Franz, the Dutch guy that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And, um, man, he questioned me so much. He, uh, he would have, in my one-on-ones, I would be saying, oh, here's what we're working on, here's what I'm doing. And he's like, but why? Why are we doing this? And he would always question me. He would really try to force me to think out of the box and think further and, and think longer, like more in distance, like, like, what does this mean three years from now, right? How does this reshape Winter River? How does this change how we do business? How does the, like he had all these things that are really, that really piece it together. Some things that I already knew, some things I didn't know, but he really forced me to piece it all together and really connect the dots between all those things. That's awesome. And uh, I was just thinking while you were talking there, um, it, looking back to like when you were in school uh -huh. and you were asking teachers about things or they were telling you about things and you're asking why, yeah. this guy was almost doing the same thing to you yeah. and making you, you know, question things and move on and like, get, make yourself a better technologist, mm -hmm. you know, make yourself look into things a little bit farther than just yeah. because I said so. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And it was awesome because he made me really realize, you know, like, He's like, okay, today we have a one megabit internet. Tomorrow that's going to be a gigabit. Right. Like, like you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's true, right? It's like, he's like, I'm right. He's right. You know, it's like. Well, just imagine where we're going to be in a few years. Oh, man. I mean, it's it's like, crazy. Right? You know, John, Johnny's two years old right now. And he's on his iPad. Just, he yeah. does everything on there. It's just like, it, they, they've made it all so user-friendly that a two-year-old knows exactly what to do. Yeah. And uh, it's it, it's absolutely it, it's a, it's a little bit exciting and frightening at the same time. Yeah. Saves you hundreds of dollars on babysitters, though. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your thoughts on um, how COVID has affected your business. For us, it's interesting because we talked about our business model earlier, right? And again, so what we allow companies to do is to save money. The, 50% off what they're already spending. They right. already have the system, they already have the spend. Coming to Ramini Streets allows them to reduce that cost overnight, right? So COVID is, is in a way, just like we saw during the 2008 meltdown, mm. is, you know, is in a way um, a catalyst for us for increased business because companies want to save money, right? Right. right? Companies are are, are they, they still want to keep innovating, but they want to keep their operating budgets low because we are in a known time. People are more conservative. Well, the ministry is a, is a very good value proposition for that. Yeah. It was interesting for me to look at, we're an IT staffing company. So all of our clients quickly moved all their people to working remotely. Yeah. As you guys, you guys were one of the first. You know, because I was I was uh, consulting with you on what are you guys doing right as soon as COVID hit, and it moved so quickly to a remote working sense. I did a I did a blog about three months before COVID hit, and uh, the research I was doing said that by twenty twenty four, over fifty percent of the people were going to be working remotely. I mean, look at it now. What is it? Seventy five percent. 
But yeah, it's a huge, huge percentage now, right? and it's going to stay that way. Oh yeah, it's uh, we are seeing this also. Like, well, we already had quite a bit, bit uh, quite a bit of people working remote. Yeah, you guys were already yes. uh, very, very so forward thinking. Exactly, because that was part of our business model. Um, is we hire the best of the best, and as a result of that, it means that we oftentimes hire consultants that have done these big enterprise system implementations, right? And so these people are consultants. So when they come to a meeting street, they get off the roads and they get to work from home and they don't have to be traveling like that. They get benefits, all that great stuff, right? So that's why we have so many people already remote working out of their homes. But now the people that were in the office is what we're seeing is these people are trying to stay at home. People are happy at home, right? Right. So it makes a question like, do we, do, it's not just a question for us, it's a question for the whole world, right? But. What do we do with all these offices, right? Are we reopening these offices? Are we maybe going more to a hotel booth kind of concept where you don't really have an office, but you can show up and you just pick a cubicle that's available? Right. A big transformation there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's been interesting. It's gonna, it's, a big it, it's changed so much. I went, I, I drove to Pleasanton the other day from out here in Brentwood and it was nine o'clock in the morning and there was zero traffic the whole way. Wow. You know, and th that's that's amazing yeah. because before I started my company, I was driving to Pleasanton every day, and if I leave at eight thirty in the morning, I might get there by ten. Yeah, you know, and I was there in about thirty five minutes. Yeah, the other day, so that's amazing. Um, while you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, all these different things that we're doing now, making the world better. And there's so many negative things in the world. You know, just watch the watch the politics that are going on in this nation mm -hmm. and around the world but there's so many positives that come out of the negatives mm -hmm. and i think we've both um, uh, been lucky to see how um, our companies and uh, our uh, industry has changed for the better during all this crap mm -hmm. so my last question for you and for everybody else is uh, what is your true ambition in your career and your work life? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a big question. It's a big question. It's a big show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think you said that before, John. Um, so, um, what is, uh, what is my true ambition? I've just been always passionate about what I do. I've always been really enjoying and I, and, and I've been really enjoying solving problems, like solving the little puzzle pieces and then bringing it together. Right. And what's interesting, somewhere in your podcast earlier was saying about how your mindset has shifted about how it was all about you and how it's now not so much anymore. And I feel the same in a way, you know, when you're younger, it's very focused on moving forward and, and making more money, being more successful. Whereas as my ambition now has more sh shifted to giving back and really helping people in the community, helping people in my workplace, helping my direct reports. Like for example, I've just been having these, all these meetings with my direct reports last week about, um, and I got 16 direct reports, it's not a small task. So right. I, um, I, I basically was asking them like, what drives you? What are your motivations? How can I help you being successful when you're at the end of your career and it's all said and done and you look back, what does success look like? So I can help them feed into that and really help them drive forward and, and that's where I really find my ambitions these days. I feel, I feel like my ambitions have shifted over time. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's just that I'm going through and reading uh, uh, 12, uh, 
12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson. And uh, one of the things in there that he talks about that uh, is interesting, that it talks about that you have to have one foot firmly uh, planted in um, steadiness and then one foot firmly planted in a little bit of chaos. And right in the middle of those two things is where growth happens. Nice. You know, if you're just sitting there in your comfort zone, mm-hmm. nothing's ever going to happen. Yep. But if you're over here in chaos completely, you're going to spin out of control. But if you're here in the middle, and that's kind of what I got out of what you said there, it's like you, you've got to have those two symbiotic things happening at the same time to have that growth. Mm-hmm. So, well, this has been great. This is, like I said, been our first ever podcast mm-hmm. for uh, True Ambition. Mm-hmm. So glad that my good friend, Steven Salatz. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, I really appreciate you yeah. being here. Um, but uh, maybe again in the future, we'll do another one and we'll compare and go, God, we're just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, man. We'll but see. anyway, thanks so much for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time on True Ambition. I'm John Sink. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition.